Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And Tom, our views are not necessarily those of Dr. Doctor, and they aren't necessarily the views of the Catholic Medical Association. Today's guest will be Dr. Loris Kelgen. He's at the University of Iowa, and he's going to talk to us about what you always wanted to know about medical errors. Yes, medical <laughs> but, but errors. But without further error, we have a couple <laughs> of uh, news items to talk about. Dealing with medical errors. <laughs> yes, this just came across um, my mailbox uh, a couple weeks ago from the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in November of 2018. The title was on Physician Burnout, Well-Being, and Work Unit Safety Grades in Relationship to reported medical errors. And what did they discover in a survey of 6,700 physicians where they looked at their level of burnout? Uh, burnout is defined by you know whether or not at least one of three symptoms are present. Emotional exhaustion. Mm. You just don't have anything else to give. Cynicism or depersonalization. That's like when you're going down the hall and you say, oh, who, what patients are in these rooms? Oh, there's a diabetes in room one and a high <laughs> blood pressure in room three and a gallbladder in four. When patients cease to be people and start to be pathology examples. Exactly. That, that's when burnout has happened uh, with a physician. What they found in this study is 54% of physicians had symptoms of burnout. Then they asked physicians, did they have any life-threatening medical errors that they committed within the last three months. In other words, did they perceive that they committed life-threatening errors? And they've shown in other studies that perception of committing an error and really committing a life-threatening one, they, they tend to line up. They agree. And 10.5% or about 700 of these 6,700 physicians said that they had done this. That's, that's pretty incredible. And these Mistakes uh, broke down, uh, number one, 39% were errors in judgment. 20%, they made the wrong diagnosis. 13%, they did something wrong during a procedure or, or during surgery. And then 8% prescribed the wrong drug or dosage. Fortunately, most of the errors, 55% of them, had no effect on the patient outcome. But 45% did. And 5% led to death. 5% led to major permanent uh, disease or deformity. Uh, so medical errors are not an uncommon problem. Yet, as physicians, what is drilled into your head from the first day of medical school all through training? To be right. Yeah, we don't make mistakes. We're not allowed to make mistakes as doctors. Patients don't expect us to ever make mistakes. Well, I think it was interesting reading this that the idea you could talk about physician burnout and maybe non-physicians, non-healthcare professionals would think, What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is when these physicians are burned out, they made mistakes that in some cases actually cost and, people their lives. And their mistake rate, which is the punchline of the article, was um, 50% more than those who weren't burnt out. So if you were burnt out, your chance of making a medical error uh, was 78% within the last three months. Yeah, That's huge. Yeah, it's massive. And so you know, what is it about physicians as compared to, say, accountants uh, or attorneys or others that, that, that leads us to burn out and then subsequently leads us to create these uh, medical errors that could be life-threatening? Well, the burnout itself is really a system problem. They've shown that for so long they've been blaming the victim. They've been blaming the physician for their own burnout. Yeah, the individual. Right. And it's really the, the medical system. It's the, it's the whole bureaucratic system, either in a hospital or requirements by Medicare, Medicaid, or insurance companies that are really getting in the way of physicians being able to practice medicine. And there is work being done in this, but uh, there's still a long long way to go. It's a frightening reality, though, that uh, that professionals are not only throwing away maybe their career, but could be harming, uh, harming us as patients at the same time. Yes, and we don't want to do that. I mean, it's a, a lose-lose situation as there are more requirements by medical systems, by insurance, by bureaucracy, by other government agencies 
uh, it doesn't serve anybody's good. What are some of the things that are out there that are being proposed to try to help prevent physician burnout? I know that one of the things is like with electronic medical records, which are not very many people's friend, uh, we're hiring extra people in our office to do all the inputting into those systems so the doctors don't have to. Uh, I just read an article yesterday where uh, in one system, uh, all the users, nurses, doctors, were asked to say, what is really fluff? What is <laughs> stupid stuff, is the way they actually put it, in the medical record that really shouldn't be there? And there were a number of things submitted in this one health system. It was actually in Hawaii. And uh, one of them was uh, on the pediatric uh, scorecard for a child. It had how was the umbilical cord stump all the way through age 18 on there. Well, <laughs> well, they took it off of there. I mean, that was a pretty simple thing. Or they had a thing for adults with incontinence and diapers, and you had to put a check mark by the nurses for either, uh, you know, it was solid, it was a liquid, or it was both. And you had to click <laughs> through that, but then they had the same thing on the children's diapers. Well, yeah, children's diaper, so they, they made less clicks. And they showed that, you know, in a month period of time, there was 24 hours worth of clicking done by nurses too much just over changing diapers. You know, it's interesting. I think the, uh, the, the, the interesting component there is it's not necessarily just too many hours worked. That would be, that would be a logical conclusion. Right. It's what's done during the work and how much of yes. that work feels uh, externally forced upon us. And unmeaningful. That, that yeah, unmeaningful, uh, irrelevant, forced upon us. And I think that probably plays a big part in the, in the burnout, more so maybe than just the absolute hours of work. That is absolutely correct. And, yeah. and you've got some information also on medical errors that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, if we continue with that theme, uh, in the British Medical Journal, which they changed their name from the British Medical Journal to the BMJ. I don't know if you knew that. That's like the YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> so in the BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal, uh, <laughs> some researchers from Johns Hopkins University published that the third leading cause of death uh, in America is related uh, to medical mistakes, medical errors, specifically those that happen in hospitals. And it, that isn't new. It's just more validation. Uh, there was a very famous study that I know you're aware of a couple of years ago called To Err is Human uh, by the National, uh, the Institute of Medicine uh, that, that proposed that it was the third leading cause of death. Part of the problem that these researchers are talking about is that on death certificates, uh, the cause of the death isn't listed as a medical error, Ooh. but it was the medical error that led to the cause of death. Therefore, we really should say medical error was the cause of death. Uh, and some compenders from uh, the Centers for Disease Control point out that that would require a dramatic change in the way that we do birth, uh, the way that we do death certificate statistics. But but it may be even worse than it's the third cause of death. But today they're saying behind cancer and behind cardiovascular disease that medical errors are the third leading cause of death. I mean, just like with the article you mentioned, that's pretty frightening, isn't it? It is. So does that mean we shouldn't go to hospitals when we get sick? Well, no, obviously uh, it doesn't mean that. But this is, to your point, really, it's a societal problem uh, that strikes at the very heart of what of the institutions that we put so much faith uh, and trust in. And then, you know, an interesting aside or, or related to this came out from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and they published um, for patients 20 tips to help prevent medical errors. Oh. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. So as we think about patient encounters, think about some of this advice. It's from the government, and they're here to help. Remember that. <laughs> At least this article is. But I like this one. Make sure that all of your doctors know about every medicine you're taking. You know, I'm not sure in your practice, but I know in mine, it amazes me when I see patients and I say, what medicines are you taking? And they aren't certain. No, it, it is frightening, and we do ask all our patients to keep a list with them and bring them in, and then my nurses will check it against the current list we have in our computer system. You know, imagine the elderly patient uh, injured in a car accident, unable to respond. Um, healthcare providers need to know what medications they're taking. So having a list that's readily available. And up-to-date. Uh, and up-to-date that's kept on your person, 
Uh, what are the medications? Another idea, why do you take those medications? It might be one thing to take an antibiotic because you had a sinusitis. It'd be another thing to take an antibiotic because you have an artificial heart valve, right? So yes. we need to know what medicines we're taking, why we take them, and the dosages uh, of those medicines. Another helpful uh, hint the government recommends is bring all of your medicines and supplements to your physician visits. Occasionally, patients do that. Yeah, it's very, very helpful to bring all of those medicines. And it's also important to point out that just because maybe it's not a prescription medicine doesn't mean that we don't need to know about oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Right? Supplements can be as important or more important, maybe, uh, than the prescription medications. Uh, the next one, make sure your doctor knows about any allergies or adverse reaction to medicines that you've had. If you've been in the hospital recently, you've probably noticed that 50 people ask you about your allergies. And it's it's very tempting to say, why don't you just talk to the last 49 people that yes. ask me what my drug allergies are? But the entire system is trying desperately to make sure that we all know the allergies uh, that people have. And I like this one. Make sure when your doctor writes you a prescription that you can actually read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, nowadays, they're sent in um, electronically. Well, yeah, but of course, you know, uh, we use narcotics for pain medicine after surgery, and those can't be sent in. Correct. They have to be written. Now, they can be typed and signed, uh, but I think probably the majority of them are still handwritten. So, And they have to be legible, both for the pharmacist uh, and for the patient. Another helpful hint to finish up, uh, the idea that Bring someone with you as your listener advocate to any physician visit. That is hugely helpful. You know, I thought my, my marriage had taken a turn for the worst a few months ago when my <laughs> wife insisted on going with me to see my primary care physician. <laughs> but I think she it just <laughs> loves you, Chris. <laughs> it, was actually, uh, it was actually a great thing to do because two sets of ears are better than one. Or as we say, many brains make good decisions, right? Yes. But take an advocate to help you listen, to help you ask questions, and to help you remember what your physician said. Well, we, before we bring on our medical error expert, I will propose today's medical trivia question. This one is according to Dr. Robert Pearl, who is a best-selling author of the book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. Now, this has nothing to do with the pearls we often talked about in medical school. That is absolutely correct. This is a different pearl. He's a Stanford University professor, used to work at Kaiser Permanente, and gives a lot of talk to physicians. According to him, what is the number one fear of physicians? Spiders? Snakes? Or public speaking. <laughs> None of the above. None of those. What is it? You'll have to stay tuned for the end of the show to find out. We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Loris Kaljan, after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where we have with us today Dr. Loris Kaljan from the University of Iowa. He's going to talk about medical errors, patient safety, and how they may even influence the physician-patient relationship. He's a director of a unique program in both bioethics and humanities. He's the chair of biomedical ethics and medical humanities at the University of Iowa and Carver College of Medicine in Iowa City. He got his MD degree at University of Michigan. He got a master's in divinity at Yale Divinity School and a PhD in religious ethics at Yale University. Just incredible. And he's published a series of articles on medical errors. Loris, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Loris, what is a medical error and what's the difference between a minor and a major error? So I think the easiest way to think of a medical error is what we would call a preventable adverse event. So that, that, of course, begs the question of what is preventable and what isn't. But that shows us that there are a lot of adverse events, meaning bad outcomes in healthcare. Fortunately, not happening all the time. And that's why we hopefully go to doctors and surgeons to get good outcomes. And we can be grateful that more often than not, that is the case. But we also know that there are things that we call complications or side effects, etc. The question of when they can be prevented considered preventable or not is what concerns us in this discussion of medical errors. So it means that basically 
on reflection, we look at something that's happened, got a bad outcome, and we decide that, you know, that could have been avoided. So that's what the preventable side means. And what made you so interested to devote a huge amount of your time over a period of years to study this? You know, it's a neat question because I enjoy looking at areas of clinical practice where we have to rely as professionals on our deepest convictions, values, beliefs, and principles. And if you think about what's at stake when a doctor has made a mistake, and now now let's just set aside the question marks where we are sometimes uncertain as to who's responsible. Let's just take the easier cases where a doctor knows that he or she did not do what they should have done or did something they shouldn't have done. At that point, think about what it takes of that physician to have the courage and the honesty to be straightforward with someone or their family member when they have to now be the bearer of some very serious news. It's incredibly painful. I've been in that position, and you know you have to do it, but oh my gosh, you'd rather do just about anything else than admit that, but it's something we all have to do. And in my medical training, we were never taught how to do that. You know, I think it's interesting where we do get some training, at least in medical schools these days, is in what is referred to as the delivery of bad news. Uh And that's usually in the context of, say, a cancer diagnosis. Yes. What I think is very interesting here is to compare the disclosure of a medical error or communicating about a medical error to, say, communicating about a cancer diagnosis. Because when now the error or mistake is what's causing the challenge of communication, the actual bearer of bad news is also the cause yes. of bad news. <laughs> and so you can see how threatening that is to the physician when they wanted to ride into town on the white horse, but instead <laughs> they're on the black horse. Right. You know, as a surgeon, uh, I think there's a tendency of, of our peers to, when things go poorly, to say, well, you know, that's surgery. These things yes. can happen. And that, that's an effort, I, I think, maybe for surgeons to sort of say, it's over there. It, yes. isn't, it isn't me. It's over there. I, I'm sorry you have cancer, but I didn't cause your cancer. <laughs> but do, do you think physicians believe that they should never make mistakes? I think this is one of the most challenging things about being a physician or, or, or surgeon. And that is to say that there, I think there really is a paradox at the core of how we see who we are and what we do. And that is to say that we acknowledge, I truly believe, we all acknowledge that as human beings, we are imperfect. You know the saying, to err is human. But at the same time, we are all striving for perfection. So when I'm talking to medical students about these things, I say to them, how are you going to live with that burden? And I think that's a real question for every physician, and it lasts throughout our entire careers. Interesting. Not not if you make a mistake, but when you make a mistake. That's right. Do you think that patients and physicians view medical errors differently? I, I think they, they do at a certain level, because I, and maybe for the reasons that, that uh, Dr. Stroud was just referring to when it comes to our own tendency at times as physicians to explain bad outcomes through other potential mechanisms like complications, side effects, etc. And I think that the defensive mechanisms for a lot of physicians and surgeons are understandable, even if at the end of the day, they should be criticized, quite frankly, because at a certain point, either we ourselves or with the assistance of our colleagues around us, can bring ourselves to the point where we acknowledge that we are responsible at a certain level for that outcome. And at that point, we need to take responsibility for it. Now, on the patient side or the family side, I think it can also be confusing because there is often so much complexity in healthcare and in the delivery of that healthcare that it can be hard to appreciate the important distinctions between you know, complications versus errors, et cetera. Uh, but I think that there, there is an intuitive sense that all patients would have to say that when there's a bad outcome, somebody must be responsible for that. Mm. Especially, I would add to this to say that when you look at billboards on the highway that advertise <laughs> things like, like knowledge is power and healthcare is, is sort of the, the, the castle on the hill that we're all riding into, I, I think we sometimes set ourselves up for some real problems because in a strange way, we have to remind patients and their families that bad things do happen in healthcare and that we are not perfect. 
And I think sometimes some physicians have a bigger problem admitting that, and sometimes patients have a bigger problem admitting that. So I think there's difficulty on both sides. What are some of the main reasons physicians don't want to reveal their own errors? You know, when I think about the anxieties and fears that that come into play, you know, I think it has a sense to do with our, our identity, right? We want to see ourselves as healers, and that's entirely as it should and must be. What a remarkable calling and privilege and opportunity that is. And it takes a real compulsive attitude toward detail after detail. And we want in ourselves as physicians, and of course all of us are also the recipients of health care, we want to be cared by compulsive, cared for by compulsive people. Having said that, at, at that deep certain level, we have to acknowledge that we are, we are but mortals, we're human. <laughs> and so how in the world do we then reckon with our, our fallibility, our finitude, and then come to terms with being forgiven at those moments when we have fallen short. So I would actually want to suggest that at a certain level, this is not just sort of a psychological concern, but it's actually a spiritual one as well. Mm. Yeah, that idea that the person that we struggle the most to forgive is ourselves, isn't it? You know, it's impossible, it seems, to talk about medical errors without bringing in the legal ramifications um, I have to admit, I'm an OBGYN, so this plays a big part of my life. But it's such a conundrum, isn't it? Because you could make a mistake and there'd be no bad outcome. You could do everything right and there could be a bad outcome. So there is almost a fatalistic, I, I can't control it. And I wonder if that if that plays into physicians' sort of sense of helplessness and even the burnout that, that Tom and I mentioned at the at the beginning of the show, because that, that really is a conundrum for the physician to feel as though they have no control, isn't it? I think, th- I think that's true, that there's a sense also of, of like life is not fair, mm. that a doctor or surgeon 99.9% of the time is, uh, is in a situation where everything is going as it should be, and then just one out of a huge denominator of cases takes a wrong turn, and the circumstances are such that in the hands of a plaintiff's attorney. It's going to be possible to say, ah, but you should have done that. And so I think, but that's why we also have to, I think, be grateful for whatever approximations of justice do exist in the sense that due process ought to lead toward a relatively fair hearing of both sides. Mm. And so the standard of care is what we refer to as the sense of of what, on average, we believe should happen in such and such circumstances. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think also, um, the, you know, the, that that the issue of malpractice, as as fear inspiring as it is for doctors, uh, it too plays a role in our society, even though it itself is not perfect. I recognize that. Does fear of malpractice play into uh, the willingness of a doctor to reveal a medical error? You know, my own sense, from my own experience and listening to people, I believe the answer is still yes to that. And the reason I say still yes is that in, in, in conversations I have with folks, including some hospital attorneys, the language these days is transparency, openness, candor. We're supposed to be straightforward with our patients about medical errors. I still believe that this is a profound impediment and it's a hurdle, and I think it's going to remain that way. I would add that in some states like Iowa, I'm not sure what's the, what the story is in Indiana, but we have this new access to something called the candor legislation, which allows for a, a protected space where physicians can meet with patients to discuss adverse outcomes and even agree on settlements outside of the malpractice system. So I think we can also be grateful for some new developments along those lines. That's good news. We're going to have to follow up on that for a future show. Now, let's get start getting into the nitty-gritty of some of your research. You looked at the attitudes of physicians toward revealing medical errors compared to what they do when they commit an error. What did you find in these studies? There does seem to be a discrepancy or contrast between what physicians and physicians in training say that they would do in a hypothetical scenario versus what they say they have actually done. 
And I think, you know, survey researchers would call that social desirability bias to some degree. <laughs> but I think there's also a sense that we are, I, I think we should assume that physicians want to do the right thing. Until proven otherwise, we should assume that. And I think it's a sign of how hard it is to actually do that. I can reflect on my own experience, especially when I was a younger physician uh, around the time of my training uh, years. I look back and I can recall some experiences that I had where I certainly knew what it was to feel the resistance to simply stepping forward and explaining to folks what happened in straightforward language. So I think there is a, a, a discordance between what we would want to be able to do and what we struggle to accomplish. We're going to take a break and come back with more data, more information, on Medical Errors with Dr. Loris Kelgen here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Loris Kelgen, where we are exploring medical errors. Loris, just before the break, you mentioned that there's a big difference between a physician's hypothetical desire to reveal a medical error and actual practice. How big might this gap be? You know, from our work in the, the, the few centers that we did our, our, our study in, it suggests that it's a sizable gap. And, and I, I won't mention actual numbers because it was, a, it was a limited study in terms of the number of folks that, that we were investigating. But the point being is that there was a substantial number of respondents who were either physicians or physicians in training who basically indicated that they had never actually disclosed an error to a patient. And that, as a practicing physician, that, that's hard for me to take because I'm assuming they've made at least one mistake. And so I remember also when we published these papers, uh, the, there were some uh, news outlets that were interested in this because, of course, they were picking up on that observation as well. So mm -hmm. the discrepancy is there, and I think it's really a sign of simply how difficult this terrain is for all of us. You know, I have to confess, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> I worked for a large health system, and my job, one of my jobs, was to meet with families when there had been a medical error. Wow. And it was horrible. <laughs> I'd like to tell you that it was a growing experience and it made me better. All it did was destroy my gastric mucosa. Um, it, it was a terrible thing. And, I, I, and reflecting back, it's been a long, long time. But in thinking about those experiences, it just goes against everything we, we think we know about ourselves. And that is we don't make mistakes. You get a hundred percent on the test, not a eighty percent on the test, uh, or you're not a doctor. But it's really tough. I mean, um, you know, talk to us about what uh, describing an error could look like or should look like versus maybe what it does look like, Loris. Yeah, you know. So the the first question is whether the physician will say anything. And so there can there can be different sorts of mistakes. There can be the sort of near miss error where no harm actually comes to the patient. It would be sort of like the idea that you're in an airplane and it comes very close to crashing but doesn't. And so there was a technical problem that led to a, a mistake but it didn't create a harm. Okay. So the near-miss errors are one sort of discussion. The next question would be the minor harms, where a physician might content him or herself by saying, well, you know, it was just, it was so small, the inconvenience to the patient, that it's not worth bothering them about it. That's another variety. And then, of course, there are the more serious and obvious adverse outcomes, where you might say the horse is already out of the barn, and so you could even imagine some physicians might be more likely to be straightforward because they see no alternative because it's going to be obvious to everyone if they don't say something. So I think there's a, a wide variety of things that can happen, and then those circumstances have a lot to do with what approach the physician takes. But I can say more about that because at that point, there's thankfully within medical education, there's a fair amount to be said about this now, about even how to set the stage for a conversation. Because just as you were saying, this is so challenging for all of us. And if you can also imagine, the physician, him or herself, is feeling more than beside themselves. They're, they're distraught. And they yes. even make reference these days to the physician <clears throat> as the so-called second victim mm. of a medical error because they need care as well. So many hospital systems, I understand now, 
have a team where there's someone on call who's available to come beside the physician or surgeon to actually help them in this process. I've heard that called a code lavender at one of our uh, regional medical centers in the Midwest. There are multiple victims involved here, and, and I, I've read some uh, some data recently on suicide rates from people on the healthcare team, be it nurses, physicians, and others, are much higher when there's been uh, when there's been a medical error. So this idea that there are multiple victims, as as you point out, and it could be devastating. It could really shape and potentially ruin a professional's career, can it? Well, it, it can, and I think this is a nice example of where. In medical ethics, we need to ask ourselves, who is this about? So no matter how much we are aching and in pain as physicians, I really believe we have to say, it's not about me at this moment. It's about my patient and or their family. And then we as fellow professionals have to find ways to support each other in real time and certainly in the aftermath of all this. But I think that you can imagine it would be rather hard for a patient or family who have just been injured to then get any signal from the physician as if, well, don't you feel sorry for me, too? <laughs> that won't work. <laughs> I mean, that would be hard to take, right? So yes. it's, it's, a, it's a different matter if the patient or family volunteers that. I mean, what a noble statement and expression that would be. But that's for them to decide, not for us to suggest. Sure, Absolutely. So, Loris, what do you think in each of these situations would be the best response for a physician who's trying to live their life in line with Christian ethics? What is the best way to approach this? Yeah, I think the, the first statement that has to be made is we need to be honest. And as old and sometimes even cliched as the word honesty may sound to some people, <laughs> it's one of my favorite words. It is. <laughs> It's not in oversupply in this world. No. I think we could all say that. And so, and I, another word I use for that these days is just straightforward. How can we always be, and I mean always, be straightforward with our patients so that no matter what other reservations they may have about us and our professionalism, at least they will be able to say he or she is a straight shooter. They are telling me as it is. They're not trying to hide and pretend things are otherwise. I think that is the first thing that has to be happened. Be straightforward, be honest. The next is, after the physician has concluded, and this can sometimes take a fair amount of time to really analyze what happened and led up to a, an adverse event, if it is concluded that a mistake was made, then we have to take full responsibility for that, and we need to apologize and make that very, very clear. Then I think also there's this question of restitution or compensation. And that, that candor law I was telling about earlier yes, in Iowa. Yes. That, and I think it's also happening, it happens in some, uh, at the institutional level, there's the idea of making things better. And I know that money can't replace the harms from injuries. But certainly, for instance, to say to a patient or family, listen, your loved one's going to have to stay in the hospital longer than we had expected, but you will not be charged for the cost of that prolonged hospitalization because that's on us. That's the sort of restitution that should be completely straightforward and obvious. There might even be more in, in more significant injuries that also has to be discussed beyond that. Interesting. This idea that uh, I think we all think as physicians that the patient is going to instantly be angry with us when in reality I think there's a the general sense of understanding that when there's a human factor that mistakes can happen it also feels like there could be a difference between um, this happened and I'm sorry and I don't know why versus this happened because um, you know I'm I'm superficial and callous and I had too much to drink last night you know, there's the difference between sort of a, you might say, an honest mistake and poor judgment, isn't there, and how patients may react to that. That's right. I mean, the, this, this idea of negligence is, mm. is, is really key here. And, you know, to what extent is negligence in the eye of the beholder, or is there an objective standard? And that needs to be, I think, determined based on an open and honest dialogue to give, in which we give our patients and their family members as much opportunity as they need to ask as many questions as they have, because they, in the end, are going to have to be the judge of whether they think you, as the physician, are acting with integrity. Loris, if any of our listeners are ever 
that patient that a doctor confesses an error to, what do you recommend they do in that situation? I would recommend they do a number of things. The, the first is they need to be supported by the people that they most want support from. So I would say that even before getting into a discussion, they should be in a position of being supported and strengthened so that they don't feel caught off guard and alone in a very awkward sort of discussion. It would be like receiving other kinds of difficult news about cancer or anything else in healthcare. So the stage needs to be set in a way that, that is empowering uh, and supportive to the patient. Then I would say, ask as many questions as you must to get as clear an explanation as is available and get as much information as you need and really deserve. Then I think whenever there's been an actual harm or injury, a patient should expect a plan. So, okay, doctor, what, what are you going to do next? Tell me how we're going to get this as you know either fixed and resolved or at least improved upon as much as possible. Another thing that many patients express that they have a desire for is a reassurance that this mistake will not happen again. Mm. Not not even to them, but that there won't be someone else in the future who gets sure. harmed by it. That actually means a lot to patients based on the literature. And then I think the issue of asking about, well, you know, this question of restitution. I, I'm not suggesting that there's a clear answer how that should be done, but especially if there have been additional costs incurred because of somebody else's mistake, I think that they should inquire respectfully but straightforwardly about how that will be handled. Wow, those are great points all. In one of the articles from the uh, Agency for Healthcare Quality, Tom and I talked earlier about things that families and patients can do to try to decrease the chance of of medical errors. In your work, what are some of those uh, most important things that you believe patients can do? You know, I I put it rather simply and say that... (laughs) that there's a a nice sort of relatively new notion of patients and families being partners in Mm. care. And that partnership, I think, is going to be most effectively manifested when patients and families ask questions and communicate any concerns that they have. And I would say another example of what can be done, talk about concrete, practically uh, clear ideas here, is whenever possible, a patient should have someone at their side. Amen. <laughs> we were just and talking I, about I, that uh, <clears throat> before you came on. Right. We were just saying that whether, the idea that you have an advocate listener. In, that's right, whether in the clinic or at the hospital and even overnight in the hospital. I remember I've sometimes had had a patient when I, back in the days when I was doing inpatient medicine where a family member would say, Doctor, do you think I should stay with my loved one overnight? And I would respectfully and try to be compassionate as I listen to that because I realize that that family members can be exhausted and often usually are, right, when they're helping with their their loved ones. But I would straightforwardly say, I actually believe your loved one will do better if you are at their side. So as Uh much as is humanly possible, I would recommend that you try or another family member or friend be there because it's things will tend to go better when there's someone who's alert and oriented at the bedside who can ask questions. When the nurse comes in and says, well, you know, maybe doesn't say anything, but just starts administering a medicine, mm. it's entirely appropriate for a family member to say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to, to suggest that I'm doubting you, but I just want to make sure I understand what, what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And to make sure, because sometimes there have actually been mistakes where people get the wrong medicines, sure. for instance. No, in fact, uh, recently my my daughter, my daughter, my sister was present at my father's nursing home at just the right moment to to save his life, uh, really? if she hadn't been there. So I I completely agree and support, Loris. This has been a fantastic discussion. You've been very practical, very humane, uh, and insightful. Thank you for being with us on Doctor Doctor. It's certainly been my pleasure. I thank you both for the work you're doing through this uh, broadcast medium. Thank you.
You're back with us on another episode of Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And Tom, everybody knows it's time for the medical trivia question. So, in case you missed it at the beginning of the show, according to Dr. Robert Pearl, is the best-selling author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care, and Why We're Usually Wrong. And he's a Stanford University professor. Anyway, our question is, what is the number one fear of physicians? And he gave this answer as a tichophobia. So anybody who said, yes, who thought it was a tichophobia, you're right, uh, which apparently is the fear of failure, the fear of making a mistake, which isn't surprising given that the previous uh, 42 minutes worth of airtime has been dealing with medical errors. Uh, physicians really generally don't brush it off, and I think that's something patients should realize. It. Uh, to say it hurts us as much as it hurts you wouldn't be accurate, but it does hurt us quite a bit. We don't want to. We fret over them. We replay it in our minds over and over and over again. Which is just another uh, another uh, affirmation of what we've been talking about with burnout and with errors and all that goes along with it. This fear plays right into that, doesn't it? It does. But now, on to something completely different. That we're not afraid of. <laughs> yes. Uh, our Lineker for the Laity segment will feature uh, Dr. Joe Casey from Creighton University in Nebraska. He's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology with certification in cancers of uh, women or gynecologic oncology. He's also professor of preventive medicine and public health at Creighton. And he's going to discuss an article published on reducing the risk of a cancer syndrome called hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome because there's some moral dilemmas concerned with this. Dr. Casey, welcome to Dr. Doctor. How do you do? Good. Joe, how common is this hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome, and what is it that happens to these patients? Well, at least 90% of the patients with hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome are linked to mutations in BRCA1, a gene in chromosome 17, or BRCA2, a gene in chromosome 13. One in 300 to 500 individuals in the general American population carries one or another of these genes. Now, in certain populations, for instance, Ashkenazi Jewish descent, one in 40 persons will carry that mutation. And there are also so-called founder mutations found in particular family pedigrees and passed in relatively closed populations uh, in which the incidence is much higher. Moreover, other genes such as RAD51C and RAD51D are now found to be linked to increased risks for ovarian cancer, but not breast cancer. So does a woman only have to have one of these genes in a pair for to give them an increased risk of cancer? Well, we all have these genes, but they have to have a mutation in one of the alleles. So just one, of, so in general, there's a pair of alleles, a pair of genes for every protein that our DNA uh, is programmed to make. So they don't have to have both, like someone with cystic fibrosis has to have both no, bad genes. You just have to have no, one of the bad one genes. one has to get knocked off. So we inherit one and the other one gets knocked off, and that is what leads to the disease. Ah, okay. So, so, Joe, if a woman has one of these HBOC genes, what's her risk of cancer? Well, breast cancer, her lifetime risk is about 50 to 70%. But the risk for breast cancer before age 50 is 30 to 50%. And the lifetime risk of BRCA2 is 30 to 50%. Wow. For ovarian cancer, the risk, the lifetime risk for with BRCA1 is 30 to 60% and even reported as high as 70%. How early in life can these cancers appear? Well, what is important is about 52% of these are reported before age 50 years, 80% before age 45% of the years, but only 2% before age 35% in Mm. BRCA1. Age 35. Okay. And are these cancers more aggressive than your average uh, breast or ovarian cancers? Actually, the phenotype of ovarian carcinoma diagnosed with BRCA1 mutation carriers is the most common type of ovarian
vary in malignancy and general populations. These are high-grade serous carcinomas or other high-grade phenotypes usually mixed with serous carcinomas. So, in fact, women diagnosed with these high-grade tumors have at least a 10 to 50% risk of carrying a BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation. So Tom started off at the beginning, Joe, and he said there's a moral dilemma. So this is amazing technology, but what's the moral component that our listeners need to be aware of? Well, of course, we want to prevent this this disease as if we can. And uh, so we're looking now at prophylactic measures. The breast cancers can be quite readily detective in these patients with fairly good prognosis historically about 85% 85% survival rates uh, with, uh, with these mutations by regular periodic medical breast examinations, mammography, and MRI screening. However, ovarian cancers are not detectable as a rule mm. or detect, uh, by any methodology that we have at the present time. And so they present and are diagnosed at very advanced stages with very poor morbidity rates of less than 30% historically and very high morbidity even with advanced aggressive surgery and rigorous chemotherapy. You know, I can remember years ago when we first started talking about these tests and people were afraid to get the results for fear that maybe they couldn't buy health insurance or they wouldn't be able to buy life insurance or things like that. What, what's the current state and what's our advice to patients who might have those fears? Well, I I believe that people who have an inclination of this before they even have testing should have a long talk with their personal gynecologist. And this person needs to be well-versed in counseling or be able to refer the patient to a cancer genetic counselor or facility that can provide that care. Uh, These issues should be discussed before testing and before the patient commits to it because of various untoward effects, both psychologically, socially, and as you mentioned, economically. So the moral dilemma here, I think, is preventing cancers that might occur using either oral contraceptive pills or a certain type of surgery. Is that correct? That's right. So how, that how do right. the oral contraceptives, how can they be used to actually well, Let help? me get into the surgery first. Okay. Because it's the most tried and true method of reducing the risk for genealogic cancers in hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome. Uh, Using a bilateral salpingo-overectomy, which removes the fallopian tubes and the ovaries by at least 40 years of age, reduces the risk for ovarian cancer by at least 80% and the risk for breast cancer by 50%. Some studies show no ovarian cancer whatsoever after this risk-reducing surgery, and we uh, projected our work into uh, 30 years beyond that. uh, The risk was found to be no more than 2%. So you're talking about removing the ovaries and the fallopian tubes before there's yeah. any disease. So in most cases, this would be looked at as mutilation from an ethical standpoint. Is that correct? Yeah, but the patient already has the disease. They inherited the disease. And uh, we don't want this disease to spread before the organs that are at risk of disseminating it have done their work. Uh, we also believe that including the hysterectomy may remove all malaria and epithelium that is maximally at risk and uh, that is at risk and maximally reduce the risk of genealogic cancer in these mutation carriers. Interesting. Uh, I mean, interesting. I, if, I'm, if I'm just might say, because you answered the quest, asked the question, a very interesting article just came out on ovarian cancer risk reduction with opportunistic salpingectomy by Kevin Donovan and uh, Dan Salmasi at uh, Salmasi at uh, Georgetown, uh, both of whom are colleagues and I know very well. And uh, Kevin Fitzgerald, who was at Loyola then Georgetown and just joined us at Creighton University, was published in CHA Healthcare Ethics just this last this this fall. And these authors discussed and rash, the rationale in accordance with Catholic bioethics for their conclusion that prophylactic salpingectomy is justified in otherwise healthy premenopausal BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation carriers by the principles of totality and double effect. Mm. That is, the well-being of the whole body 
is served by significantly reducing the high risk for ovarian cancer, which is the direct intent of the surgery, not sterilization. We have about two minutes to cover the aspect of using the oral contraceptive hormones Mm -hmm. during childbearing years. How does that work in this syndrome? Yeah, well, let's just take the overall risk. Just make it rounded off to 65% in BRCA1 mutation carriers and 45% in BRCA2 mutation carriers. After just one year of combined oral contraceptives, that is combined estrogen progesterone, initially marketed as oral contraceptives, there's a 30 to 80% reduction in ovarian cancer in BRCA1 mutation carriers and 60% reduction in BRCA2 mutation carriers. And these prophylactic effects of combined oral contraceptives against ovarian cancer in numerous population studies confirmed that the risk of ovarian cancer decreases proportionately with increasing years of usage. Yeah, Joe, I know there are some of our listeners that would say, but I've heard many people talk about the increased risk of breast cancer. How do we balance those out statistically, the risk of breast cancer yeah. from oral contraceptives versus this yeah. protective effect? And then is, yeah. it, is it outweighed because this is a super at-risk population? Well, the potential risk of uh, oral contraceptives, of breast cancer increase in oral contraceptives, recent reviews and meta-analyses, several of them, conclude that neither use nor duration of the use of combined oral contraceptives increase the risk of breast cancer in either BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation carriers. So you've given us the example of a condition where things that otherwise would be unethical are perfectly ethical in that situation. Joe Casey, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor, and thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode from the official program of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing advances in cancer care. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.